Welcome to Brain and a Vat. Uh, we are delighted to be rejoined by Rebecca Tuval. Uh, our first episode together is on a, an episode of Black Mirror, Striking Vipers, and we're going to be talking about some more Black Mirror today, and in particular about public shaming. We're all familiar with the phenomenon of online shaming and related terms like cancel culture and cyberbullying and no platforming, but perhaps partly because these are such new phenomena, I think we don't always have a good grasp of what they are. So I love turning to Black Mirror for philosophical illumination, and I'm going to discuss two episodes in particular, Hated in the Nation and Nosedive, because I think they both illuminate several features of these phenomena. So let me just begin by saying how I'm thinking of cancel culture and online shaming. So just a rough definition that I thought of for cancel culture is what happens when an individual is publicly shamed and subject to either an attempted or a successful exile or cancellation right, from a community of which they've been a member. Um, and I think what's important is that it's for it's for a transgression that is perceived or actual, but that is within the legal limits, right? So it's generally for protected speech, like in, you know, it's protected by the First Amendment, but it's deemed dangerous or problematic or immoral. I don't know that that's a perfect definition, but I think it's a good working definition. And then I, I wanna talk about shame as taking place when kind of a whole person and not just a given act right, is ostracized for uh, some perceived or actual violation of uh, a social norm. So I think that distinguishes shame from other related phenomena. And this is something Mar Martha Nussbaum notes, which I think is correct, which is that shame attaches to the entirety of the individual, whereas guilt kind of pinpoints an act. So okay, those are the definitions that I, I at least want in the background. And I'll start saying something about hated in the nation, because uh, I think it really depicts several elements of cancel culture and online shaming really well. So let me just give a quick rundown of this episode. So in this episode, there's a series of deaths that take place. And what connects all of the victims is that they've all been recent targets of massive online shamings. And uh, this is for various transgressions like kissing on a war memorial or publicly making fun of a child or mocking a disabled person. Um, but then it turns out that all of the victims were kind of the top daily picks in a hashtag game called death Two, And the hashtag users didn't realize that it wasn't actually just a game. And the person who came up with the game was literally killing the targets by hijacking robot bees, known as ADIs or automatic drone insects. Um, and then those bees would locate victims and burrow into their brains through an orifice like their nose or their ear, kind of take over their mind and ultimately kill them. That's the, <laughs> the brief summary of the episode. So I love this episode as a metaphor for online shaming. I think it's totally brilliant. Um, why do I say that? So I think 
online shaming is a situation in which kind of a horde of people, like a horde of internet users, kind of begin to function less like independent actors and more like, like a swarm of bees, like a hive mind, uh, if you will, right? Any one of whom just acting alone might incur a painful sting like an individual bee. But when taken together, their acts can cause a serious amount of harm and even death. And so you might think, does online shaming actually result in literal death? And here's where I think the metaphor is really good because cyberbullying has in fact been linked to increased suicidal ideation and suicide right, in teenagers and children especially. Um, but the way that it happens is through the, through the psyche, right? So people kind of go into others' minds and the users start to basically, the, the targets start to hate themselves, right? More than even the, the online haters. Uh, and then they you know, start to feel a kind of deep sense of inadequacy and maybe ultimately leading to their, to their death. It was like having a whole weather system turn against me. It was just hate message after hate message around the clock all piling on. And it, it's, it's hard to describe what that does to your head. And suddenly there's a million invisible people all talking about how they despise you. It's, it's like a, a mental illness. It seems like online shaming can be incredibly harmful to the victim, right? And, and I think that's what this episode is trying to show and how pernicious it can be. Um, the episode also criticizes the shamers, which is a point I'm sure we'll get to a little bit later. Um, I'm curious... You made a very interesting point earlier, which is that the person who is shamed online and has this hive, this swarm attack them, has often made an error, which then overshadows the way everyone perceives their entire lives and their entire personality. Mm -hmm. And it seems like in most cases, that would be an error, right? So not just the error they've made, but there's an error in perceiving the error they've made as all-encompassing and worthy of destroying this character. But can we imagine um, more difficult cases where someone does do something genuinely bad, um, not, just a, not, not just a social slight, not just a, a small error, but something terrible, um, and that no matter what they do before that and what they do after that, their entire lives have been overshadowed um, and, and, and they deserve this, this form of shame? Good question. I think those difficult cases are always where we should go in trying to figure out if a given moral act is ever justified. So in this case, the act would be publicly shaming. I think that regardless of what you have done, public shaming is always a bad tool. I don't think it should ever be used. <laughs> That's like a very absolute statement. But I think that for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, I think it is strategically misguided. What tends to happen is right, not that that individual becomes reformed in any way, right? They tend rather to just deepen into whatever little world they already occupy 
uh, and probably become even more psychologically uh, ill than they already are. So I think, you know, if the if the goal is involves reforming an individual, which I'm sure you'll say, well, it's not about that. It's probably about the expressive benefit to that punishment. But then in the second case, I would say that even using shame in that regard as a kind of expressive punishment is still is still misguided and dangerous. So the reason I think it's always wrong is just about what we owe people, right? e even the morally worst individuals. It is wrong to the person, right? So I'm not a hard consequentialist on this question. I don't think that the, the benefits could outweigh um, the bad of shaming a given individual. I think that respect for that person um, demands that we treat them in a way that with an eye toward their restoration. John Ronson wrote this book called So You've Been Publicly Shamed, and he, he has an interesting case. So there's this um, teenager who gets drunk, he takes out his parents' car, and he goes on a joyride, and he um, kills someone in the, in the accident. Um, and he winds up um, being sentenced to jail. And after spending, I think it's six months in jail, uh, he gets summoned to court by a judge who says, um, I want to replace your punishment. Instead of you, you know, sitting in this prison cell, you need to be publicly shamed. And so what he does is every day he has to wear this placard around his neck, which said, because of my excessive drinking, I ruined two people's lives and I feel immense shame about that. And he has to do it for a very extended long period of time. And he finds it um, both the thing that saves him in the sense that he's freed from the prison cell, but he has to now confront this horrible thing that he's done on a very regular basis. Um, but there's also meant to be the sense of there's a public atonement. So people are able to see that you have confronted the wrong that you did. Um, and I think there's something different about being shamed in person versus being shamed online. And it's something that Ronson touches on is that, you know, if you had a small village and, you know, someone stole and then you shamed them for it, at some point in time, you would feel that it was inappropriate to continue to shun them because you would see their turmoil and there would be a a dance between the shamer and the and the community and at some point you'd say we think you've learned your lesson we're going to stop doing this whereas online what you have is an anonymous mob of people who feel that that person is cancelled and if they ever pop back up well that's not okay because i like my stream to be very curated and uh you know you you're now arriving to um you know, to ruin my experience. And so you need to be vanquished for good. And I never get to see the turmoil that you're going through. So when you, you know, read accounts of people that have been online shamed, um, you know, they, they go through enormous amounts of, of trauma and guilt. Um, and that when they try and resurface, um, you know, they're often shut back out again. And, and as you say, this sort of leads to the suicidal ideation and doesn't fulfill the function that, you know, public shaming might have fulfilled in the real world. I... I don't want to make as strong a statement as public shaming is never justified. I think I want to say that online public shaming is not justified because of the particular features of the online world. So you mentioned the anonymity. That means that the shamers can be far worse online 
than they are likely to be in person. They're behind a screen. You know, they might even be behind a pseudonym. Um, the permanency that you mentioned as well, right? It is out there and it lives on forever. It comes to define you. You mentioned Ronson's book. He talks about Justine Sacco, who infamously tweeted, hopping on a plane to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS, just kidding, I'm white. And by the time she landed, her whole life had been destroyed. And she talks about how even attempting to date years later, you know, this is the thing that would pop up about her online. So the permanency, I think, outstrips the proportionality of the punishment, which maybe exists in the case you described. I also think that online, it's harder to get it right. So there's, uh, there's some concerns about how accurately you are tracking a wrongdoer's behavior. Right? You're, if you're not actually there you know, to witness the, the wrong or you're not in a court setting, you're just somebody behind a computer who hears of this wrong, what are the chances that you're actually accurately tracking the truth? So for those reasons, I think the online public shaming is more likely than not to outweigh the, the harms of, of the initial act, of the initial transgression. So my co-host, Mark, is an advocate, and he thinks that the legal system is on the whole a good idea, right? So, um, I mean, we, we don't have a jury-based system here in South Africa. We've got a judge. Um, but um, the legal system certainly shames, right? Um, it's not online shaming, although perhaps Zoom has taken is now the medium for a lot of a lot of court cases. But um, it's 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 an in-person shaming most of the time. But let's say you're sentenced to prison. Um, by the time you get out, there's certainly a stigma attached to being in prison. Um, and I wonder whether the objections that you give to um, online shaming um, or just shaming generally as, as problematic can't be applied to someone who's been imprisoned or punished through the law. When punishment starts to act more like online shaming, then it becomes wrong. So you described the case of a criminal who even after they've served their sentence, they go out in the world, they can't get a job, right? That it follows them uh, they, uh, as a kind of permanent badge. I do think that's wrong because now it's not so much a question of your guilt over this one act. It is you as a person who's being uh, targeted. So you helped me realize that it's probably not right to make this either about online or offline shaming but about shaming itself as the thing that engulfs the entire identity of an individual, get, giving them no possibility of reform or change down the road because they have just been ostracized and deemed no longer a member of this community. I think the important qualification that you start with as well is you're saying it's protected speech. In other words, you're not dealing with someone who's committed an actual crime. What they've committed is a social crime. Um, and that the barometer for that social crime seems to have shifted quite a lot lately in terms of what are the kinds of things that you can get shamed for. Um, a very recent example, um, and I, I'm not a fan of the show, 
Um, but the host of The Bachelor, who's been hosting it for 20 years, um, has just been shamed into resigning. And the reason is really interesting. Um, so one of the contestants, um, apparently for the first time, um, The Bachelor is black on the show, which is sort of um, you know seen as, as a big change for a show that's been running for 20 years. And so one of the contestants is white and is in the lead to marry him, I suppose. And some people started tweeting that, you know, this is um, rather surprising from you because you bullied me as a teenager because I like black guys. Um, and here's a picture of you at a antebellum um, dance. Um, and you seem like the epitome of white privilege and therefore you're a hypocrite. And so what the host did was in an interview say, look, you know, um, before we leap to judgment, we, we might want to allow all the facts to come in and determine whether or not this person has done something which warrants her public shaming. And his defense of her is what has led to his resignation, accompanied by the usual, um, you know, I am so sorry for the hurt that I've caused, and this is the worst possible thing that any human being has ever done. And, you know, I will voluntarily resign from this, you know. Um, so I think what's interesting as you say about the difference between shame and guilt is that it's, it's more like a disease that spreads. Um, and so there's a contamination that occurs and anyone who's touched the contaminated thing cannot be trusted and must be discarded. And that's different to you performed an action and we think that action is not okay and we're judging you for that thing. We're not just judging who you are and who you associate with. We were saying that you're, you're covered in the disease shame. Actually, the YouTuber ContraPoints compares canceling to gonorrhea, <laughs> saying that if you if you defend someone who's been canceled, you'll also be canceled. It's like a disease that spreads. I think that's totally right. In my own case, I was publicly shamed and people read me as, you know, offering a defense of an individual who had been canceled. Rachel Dolezal, right? The NWCP chapter head who identifies as black despite being born to white parents. And I've spoken to a couple other theorists who had similar experiences writing on Dolezal, that there is this radioactive effect, uh, certainly. Um, this point you raise about the Bachelor case, which I didn't know about, is a, an unfortunately ubiquitous feature too of a lot of the online shamings, which is going well back into the past and picking out some act someone committed maybe a decade or 15 to 20 years prior, and then using it to stigmatize the entire person's identity. I think that's especially egregious for a couple of reasons. One is that it just shows a failure to consider one's own moral failings and the fact that we are all fallible. And if you go far enough into the future, future generations will look back on all of us and, and have a wealth of acts to judge, right? Uh, and this is, happening, this is happening obviously too with debates about whether or not we should read certain people from the past who had sexist or racist views and all of that. And I think uh, turn the lens on yourself right before you make these kind of wholesale judgments. I think for me, they're reminders of just how easy it can be to, to fail to identify our own prejudices. What do you think the right response is 
if you're publicly shamed. So you face this personally. Um, it seems off the top of my head that one response is to apologize. Um, and um, that's often unsuccessful. Um, one could double down. Um, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure what the correct response is. I've come to think that apologies in the wake of online shaming are pretty much always to be disregarded as far as giving an accurate view of that individual sense of things. And I say that because you know, going back to the video, the clip earlier, people don't understand what it is like to be on the receiving end of a public shaming and the kind of psychological damage that that does to people. So anytime that I see these apologies popping up, you know, I made an apology myself. It was really hard for me to get into the right frame of mind. You just can't think clearly. It really is like a, a weather storm and you don't even really know what's going on. So my sense is that the best thing to do is just retreat and try to gather yourself to get to a place where you can actually think properly about what's going on. This is one thing I find especially depressing about public shaming in academic settings, I think there's a host of deleterious epistemic effects that take place when you're publicly shamed. I mean, what I was frustrated by is that I wanted to hear what the critics were saying, but it was literally impossible kind of under the weight of the shaming, uh, you know, and I, and I couldn't strip myself away from the computer, unfortunately. And I have since advised other people to, to do that. Um, but it is striking in the kind of psychological impact that it can have on people. Um, there really is a major difference between the actual impact and how shamers perceive the impact. So that's why I'm also critical of people who say, oh, well, if they're famous or if they're a celebrity, it's no big deal. Nah, -uh. if they're human, <laughs> then they can be subject to the deep uh, psychological destruction that a kind of public shaming can exact. If you think about someone like JK Rowling, who is the most popular children's author of all time, incredibly wealthy, and has been attacked on the grounds that she's transphobic, even though she's gone to great lengths to say that she has trans friends, um, that she thinks that, uh, you know, no harm should come to them, but that we ought to be able to have civil disagreements um, uh, about you know, about the issue. And people have called for her books to be burned. And what's interesting is that she's played quite open cards about what that experience has been like, and has often talked about being subject to abuse at earlier times in her life, how she'd sort of been a, a, you know, a battered woman. And it's clear that this is not someone who is immune from the effects of the public shaming. Um, you might think even that public figures um, feel it even, even more so. If you're used to being venerated and loved, and that crowd turns against you, uh, it must be flooring for you. Uh, I would think the strategic stuff is interesting because on the one hand, if we think about the role of an apology ordinarily, that apologies are often appropriate. If you've done something genuinely wrong, if you're in a if you're friendship with someone and you, um, you hurt them or you offend them, you might think that the correct thing to do is to apologize in the circumstances and that the function of the apology is to restore the relationship and the other person um, might even have a moral obligation to accept your apology and that you then reconcile the relationship and move forward. It seems that the function of apologies 
uh, in public shaming is different because people feel like that's what they're doing. They're saying, let's move on. Um, let's reconcile the relationship. But what you're doing is conceding the merits. They say, well, you now concede that what you've done is wrong. The only question left is how many times can we beat you for it? Um, you know, how many lashings must you now endure? And then the other problem that you have is that it's become increasingly clear that the, the apologies aren't sincere because how could they be when the, the thing that you're being shamed for is ludicrous? Um, how can you sincerely say I'm sorry when you, you're not sorry? So they almost look like they're produced by the postmodern essay generator. You know, it's sort of they follow the same kind of language, which is, you know, I need to do better. And, you know, clearly I didn't have a full enough understanding. And, you know, I promise that in the future I'll avoid this kind of behavior. Um, one of the ones that strikes me is particularly egregious. Um, I really like the show Big Mouth. It's a great animated show on Netflix. Um, and one of the characters is a mixed race character. She's got um, a black father and a Jewish mother, and she was voiced by the Jewish actress Jenny Slate for years. And at some point in time, Jenny Slate was shamed into resigning from the role on the grounds that uh, she's not black. And she, so she sort of did this apologetic work where she said, you know, my, clearly I was blinded by my white privilege. Um, and, you know, I, I thought it was okay for me to do this because I'm Jewish and because I had similar experience with the character. Bear in mind, this is a cartoon and you're an actress. Um, you know, the idea that you have to have the same life as the person you portray strikes me immediately as bizarre. Um, but she does all this work and she sort of says, you know, I clearly was wrong and I will resign the role and this must be handed to someone uh, who, by the way, is not mixed race, but is black. So there's a sort of strange, weird double standard and you have Jenny Slate publicly, you know, prostrating herself clearly in the hopes that she doesn't get permanently cancelled so she can do other work. Um, and this is the weird game that gets played is that you have to tell this public lie um, in the hopes that maybe there'll be some redemption from you at some point. Maybe you'll be allowed back into the club and, you know, we'll, we'll embrace you and you can continue to make a living for yourself. Um, but the whole thing starts to look like a sick sham. I do think we can't give much credence to the apology when it is first issued because I think it is almost always issued under this situation of severe like psychological stress and trauma. So you have to give people an opportunity to, to actually think about whether or not they believe they owe an apology. I don't think all online shamings are uh, targeting people for you know, silly or frivolous um, kinds of transgressions. I think increasingly that is the case, sadly. But certainly sometimes people do say things that we might think are wrong and that maybe they ought to apologize for, right? Um, but I agree with you that the apology given in the moment is almost always insincere because it's motivated by, I have just been exiled from my community, how do I clamor my way back in? And at that point, there's nothing you can say. You've already been tossed out, you know, as far as those people are concerned. Given, given that uh, shaming seems to be such a, um, a detrimental experience for the person who's shamed, um, given that it's just so massively serious and can, you know, it's, it's a public death um, and, and can also be a private death and, and can shatter a life um, and a career, um, is it something that's so completely divorced from our everyday experience that someone who hasn't undergone a public shaming just can't understand it? 
something we touched on before we started this podcast, um, that you've been through this, um, and Mark has devoted a lot of his 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 um, legal career to this, um, discussing issues around free speech. Um, I have not been publicly shamed. Um, I'm a gay man, so I guess in some sense I've I've experienced shame in my life. But for whatever reason, I didn't get the memo, and I've always been very much out, and 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 I just haven't suffered much shame. Um, given that I haven't, um, is it possible for me to understand what you're even talking about? Um, is there an epistemic closedness to shame? There's a moment in the episode where the main detective kind of dismisses the kinds of harm of public shaming. She says, that internet stuff just drifts off like weather. It's half hate. They don't mean it. And I think that's a very common experience that people will often just dismiss the worries about the kinds of harm public shaming can, uh, can exact. I do think, having been on the receiving end of it, that you'd be surprised uh, to learn just what it can be like um, to be publicly shamed and that it might be a, what Lori Paul calls a transformative experience such that you, you won't be able to fully understand it if you haven't experienced it. So she uses the example of becoming a parent as an example of a transformative experience that, you know, and, and I certainly feel that way where I try, to, I try to access what exactly it is like for friends of mine who have children. And I, I can maybe get some things, but I can't get the whole thing. Um, I believe that's true for public shaming. And I, I think it, it, it doesn't fully exculpate shamers, but I think it mitigates uh, some of the responsibility because I think they genuinely don't know what they are participating in the type of collective harm that they're participating in. I want to show a clip now that depicts what I think the experience of most shamers is like. So this is back to Hated in the Nation, where the detectives visit a woman who had used the death to hashtag, but who had also ordered a cake to one of the target's houses that said fucking bitch on it in icing. Death to Joe Powers. She posted that Monday morning. The bakery said that they're not meant to do obscenities, so I said it was for my sister, like a, just a joke thing, and they agreed, so. Not cheap, their cakes. With delivery, it was what, 80 quid? Um, well, I, I didn't pay for it all myself. We all put a pound in each. We? Yeah, I'm on a mums and carers message board. I held a sort of whip round. You crowdsourced the money? Yeah, if you like. From 80 other people? Look, I'm not... I'm not being funny, okay? I know she is dead. But did you read what she had written? That how much do you think she got paid for spouting that horrible shit? I don't know. I was just using my freedom of speech. To send a threatening message. Look, it was funny, okay? And I can see if I'd done it myself, then that would be a bit weird, but I'm not mental. You wish she was dead? Well, uh, 
No, no, I didn't. Yeah. Death to Joel Powers. <laughs> That's just... It's a, a, a hashtag game, you know? Like, death to you insert the name of someone who's been an arsehole. It's not real. It's a joke thing. Okay, so I, I love that scene for a few reasons. One is that you know, she clearly thinks of herself as a really good person. She's on a mums and carers message board. She's a teacher. I think that's very often how public shamers feel, that they are, in fact, the just people who are teaching others how to be morally better than they are. Uh, and she has no sense of the magnitude of the harm that she's caused because to her, it was just a joke. It was funny. And she is just one individual in a massive collection of people um, who together did something horrible. But as an individual, she couldn't even remember what she said. I think that's probably how it is for a lot of people that they're on Facebook or Twitter and they're maybe liking things and posting things. In the case of my own online shaming, I know there were um, a couple of feminists who uh, were kind of liking posts and uh, who later kind of said that they didn't even realize that they had been liking posts that, you know, I, I'm, and I might see that and take it personally. So I think another feature of online shaming is that it's not about the target at all. It's really about signaling your membership in a community. So no one was imagining I was reading, you know, what was happening on Facebook. I don't think it wasn't targeted to, to me. It was about me, but it really wasn't meant for me. And I think that clip shows that well too. The, the phenomenon is quite unique, as you say, that part of it is that you want to show your adherence to the faith by joining the collective and joining this, uh, this moment where we can show how righteous we are and how much we condemn whatever the thing that's condemnable of the day, you know, um, the kind of hereticism that it is that you that you think is distasteful. Um, and also that it's done almost carelessly, as you say, like, in other words, if you had to look that person in the eye, and say to them, look, I, I think what you did was really reprehensible, you probably wouldn't do it, because you don't feel that strongly about it. But if all you need to do is share a petition or put your name on something or like a post, and that you can do that, you know, in between picking the kids up from school, um, well, that's a lot easier, um, but that the harm may still be very severely felt. Are we in a situation now where enough people have been shamed um, for things that an ordinary person would regard as a trifle or would have been regarded as um, banal things to have said, you know, even a few months ago, um, because the sand seemed to shift quite quickly? Do we have enough people who've been shamed with it? There's a collective to say, we're going to back each other. Um, we're going to be able to support each other through these sorts of things um, and we can avoid um, being further, further shamed. So I think about someone like Helen Pluckrose, um, her and James Lindsay have started a project which is basically to provide ordinary people with tools against um, a, a number of pernicious things that are going on in the, let's say, woke movement, some of which would include social shaming, um, providing people access with other resources, other people who've been through similar experiences um, with legal recourse. Uh, because I think the trick, as you say, is you apply a lot of pressure on someone very quickly, um, isolate them and extract an apology as quickly as you can. And you know then you can move on to the next target. If that person says, um, 
I refuse to apologize until I've spoken to my lawyer, until I've spoken to my team, um, or you've got other people that are backing you, um, then you you survive the, the attempted shaming and you get to move on with your life. Well, you survive the attempted shaming in one sense, but if the shaming is successful enough to excommunicate you from some community or you know, to cause you rep reputational damage or to cause you to lose your job. Uh, I mean, maybe that's where the lawyers could come in handy, right? That this was an unjust basis upon which to fire someone. But a lot of companies have a lot of leeway to fire people. <laughs> so I do think the growing number of people who have been shamed are could comprise a sort of community uh, and that there are more and more people kind of speaking about and pushing back against these tendencies. But I'm more pessimistic, I think, about us overcoming this tendency. One, because I think it's a pretty ingrained uh, human propensity to solidify one's own membership in a group by clearly identifying an outsider to that group, right? So if there's a given social norm in place that is central to your group identity, right, and somebody is seen to threaten that norm, then the shaming will take place. I think this, is, this has always been the case for us historically, like public mobbings and all of that. I mean, they go way back, you know, medieval times. I mean, there's a, a lot of them. It's just that now in the online era, they can reach like thousands and millions of people and have this permanency. You, know, you can't just pick up your life and you know, move elsewhere. No one will know who you are. So the, the gravity of the effects is much worse. The newspaper, The Spectator, um, had a situation where one of their advertisers um, got tweeted at saying, you know, we see that you advertise to The Spectator and The Spectator is a known uh, white supremacist hate magazine. It's one of the oldest magazines in the UK and has been around since the 1800s. Um, and the person running the account said, oh, oh, we didn't realize. Uh, well, of course, we'll withdraw advertising immediately. And The Spectator's response was to say, um, we're just going to let you know that you are banned. Um, we will never accept your money. Um, you have clearly been duped by, uh, you know, some some trolls on Twitter, and you've allowed, you know, your your business to, um, you know, be suckered into this. Um, so just so you know, you're banned. And anyone else who engages in this behavior, we will not carry advertising. And within 24 hours, the CEO of the company wrote a very groveling apology to the Spectator, saying. We're really sorry. Um, you know, you know, we know that you do wonderful work for us, and we have no problem with your magazine. And you know, please, would you reconsider? And they said, "You are forgiven." And I think that's interesting. That kind of pushback. Um, and I wonder if we'll see more of that. I have a friend who's a, a who's a radio DJ, and you know, part of doing that kind of work was that you need to be able to say controversial things. You've got to be able to make jokes, a sort of uh, South African shock jock, and. Um, at one point, he had a very uh, lucrative TV deal, which had been, um, he ran, he was a judge on Idols. Um, and uh, at one point, there was a move to cancel him because he'd, again, been associated with someone else. So we had someone who was publicly shamed South Africa quite in a quite a notorious way. And his answer was, South Africans clearly don't understand free speech. So not to endorse the content, but just to point out, this person has got protected speech and for that was, uh, was fired. And his move was to say, I'm going to take you to court. 
and I'm going to beat you, which he did, and make myself unfuckable with. And, and it's worked very well. So people haven't tried a similar tactic on him again, because they know, you know, this is someone who will fight back. Um, so it's much easier to prey on soft targets. And I wonder if that's the mistake that people make is that they they do the the soft thing, they sort of say, Okay, let me apologize, maybe I'll rehabilitate it instead of saying, I will fight you and I will fight you hard with my friends. Obviously, the more people are canceled, the more those people comprise the individuals who respond to others being canceled. So it certainly stands to reason that things might get better just by the sheer number of people who've been on the other end of it and who think it's wrong. <laughs> but how do you make yourself unfuckable with? Uh... Well, to my mind, it's not the kind of thing you can do alone, uh, that it requires, I think one is you say that kind of emotional support network. Um, you know, people that have either gone through it or are willing to back you. And I think some of that requires doing it before the public shaming happens. I think most people will probably anticipate that, you know, they have a Facebook account or a Twitter account, and they may express a view that uh, is perfectly favorable now and will not be favorable in two years time, and they may be hunted down. Um, and they may be, you know, dragged before the mob. And so because I think everyone faces this fear, um, people either sense that self censor and stop saying anything that could be controversial. But bear in mind, you know, what's controversial in five years time will not be what's controversial now, as you pointed out, future generations will judge our behavior, you know, eating meat, for example, is a very widely held practice. And I think many vegetarians feel that it is deeply immoral. And maybe future generations will feel that, you know, this was something that uh, we failed at as a generation that this was the Holocaust against animals. And those people are all, you know, uh, immoral and you know deserve massive shame and we shouldn't be reading any non-vegetarian authors you know you can have this sort of movement that arises i'm very very critical of the go back in time and judge people on the basis of our current norms because then every single person is horribly uh, immoral i mean it's just extremely difficult to step outside of our context. I absolutely think, I think this is all about communities and group identities. And if you've got an emotional support network or another community to kind of land on, then you will be less fuckable with. <laughs> but it's going to really depend then on the, the thing that you're shamed for and the community that you're exiled from. I think that, so in my case, for instance, you know, I didn't actually have in the end bad uh, material consequences to my shaming. I didn't lose my job, although there were some calls for that to happen. You know, the paper wasn't retracted from the journal. Um, and yet I had understood myself to be a member of a certain academic community, like this academic feminist community. And I think it matters how central the community you're being exiled from is to your identity. So, uh, I think even if you have other communities available to you, if the community you're being excommunicated from is like a really central one to how you understand yourself, I think that's, that's going to exact harm. And obviously, I mean, this depends on people's particular psychological profiles. And maybe here's where we can turn to nosedive too, because obviously different people will react differently to being shunned. Right? Um, but Again, I think just if it's a community that really matters to you, right, 
like then the shaming from those individuals will will, will probably fuck with you <laughs> regardless. What, one of my favorite books um, by Salman Rushdie is a book called Shame. And um, it's about uh, this family who exist in a community where there's plenty of shame about a thousand different things. Um, and they, there's this young, young child in the community. Um, and the child has meant, is mentally undeveloped um, and has certain challenges. And this child starts to act out the collective shame of the community. Um, and the community has been scapegoating various people and treating people abominably and publicly shaming them. And this young child who doesn't fully understand what is going on, but feels that, that sense of collective shame, uh, one day goes into a barn and there's all these chickens in the barn and rips the heads off all of these chickens. And it's meant to really you know, illustrate what how, how this child is expressing the collective shame of this community. Um, you talked about, I mean, you and Mark have both talked about community, um, how having a community when you are shamed offsets some of the problems, although as you've said, it doesn't offset all of the issues. Um, earlier, right at the beginning, I, I asked whether there aren't any um, actions that an individual could commit that could justify public shaming. Um, I wonder whether um, there's a related question to ask, still trying to defend public shaming. I mean, I personally don't think public shaming is a good idea, but I just I think it's interesting to look at these limiting cases um, and some of the reasons why public shaming might have a positive um, impact, not on the person uh, who's publicly shamed, but perhaps on the community. So it does bring a sense of co social cohesion to the shamers even though, as you say, at any point, any one of them could be shamed um, because, you know, the, the restrictions on people's behaviors become more and more extreme. Um, and so it becomes easier and easier to be publicly shamed yourself. But so long as you don't become one of the victims of public shaming, you do feel, I'm guessing, like you are part of a community. And, um, and so perhaps the function of public shaming is to shape um, social cohesion in a certain way so that people don't misbehave and also to bring people together, even at the cost of um, those who are shamed along the way. I think you're raising fundamental questions about the nature of identity. Part, part of the reason we treat animals the way we do is because how we understand human identity requires projecting a certain kind of not us onto another being. So let's say that that's just what it is like to have an identity that part of what it means is you are not them, right? That kind of Hegelian or recognition sort of understanding of what it means to be a member of a group. Then that means that someone or some group or something will always be kind of on the, the chopping block or you know in the the land of the uh, not them and I mean I, I think you can think of moral progress actually as progressively including more people within the realm of equal citizen who have historically occupied that role as you know lesser than in the digital age there's a very deep sense of a lack of community um, and so you're going to find more people probably 
banding together and maybe doing the shaming because they feel lost. They're they're literally isolated, you know, now more than ever during COVID. So maybe that's why we see also just this rise in shaming. People are scrambling for a sense of common identity when they don't have one. So the flip side of shame seems to be about building up a reputation and nosedive the episode that you've referred to is all about maintaining a social credit score and the idea that it is public so you can hang out with the cool people you can live in nicer housing if your reputation score goes up nosedive is a fascinating episode and i'll show a clip from it in a moment but i think it highlights definitely the the negatives to being shamed and canceled but actually also some of the positives to being a target of online mobbing. Um, so yeah, as you said, it depicts a world in which people are constantly rated on a five point scale in every single interaction. And that scale determines where they can live and the kind of medical treatment they can have and places they can access everything. And I should say that you, there are productive comparisons here to the Chinese social credit system, um, right, where we have essentially a set of, kind of databases and practices that assess citizens' trustworthiness and integrity. And citizens are given a, a literal score um, based on bad and good behavior, bad behavior, including things like traffic violations and playing video games, playing too many video games, I think. Um, and much like in Nosedive, you know, your score can prevent you from traveling, from getting a loan, from going into certain restaurants and whatever, you can get listed on the list of dishonest persons subject to enforcement by the Supreme People's Court, that's what it's called. So it's, it's eerily um, uh, similar to what we've got in China. And you know, we obviously have our own mechanisms of rating and social enforcement today too in the States. I mean, you, they're you might not know that you have an Uber rating. You not only rate your Uber driver, your Uber driver rates you and Yelp, obviously, and rate my professor too. There's so many different rating systems, right? In the episode, we see Lacey Pound, who's at a 4.2, but she desperately wants to be a member of kind of the high class community so that she can access all of the most um, vaunted material benefits. And on her way to be maid of honor at a wedding, she takes a, a nosedive, um, ultimately kind of plummeting below zero and ending up uh, in, in jail. Just what, one thing it really highlights is just what it is, what it is like to live in a society when you are constantly subject to certain normalizing expectations um, and pressure to, to conform uh, and how ubiquitous and constant that uh, can be and how terrifying it is when you fall off the ladder, but also how liberating it can be. Because in the end, actually, she's represented as happy and free in her prison cell. Well, it's not hopeless. You're clearly a Troy. That's the sense you get just from me? <laughs> from your rep report analytics. If we drill down into the numbers, you have got a solid popularity arc here strong overall trajectory let's just look at the last 24 hours you see even what's that 8 40 a.m you're working hard on your socials 
Great little uptake there. Okay. Couple of minor dings there. You cut someone off in traffic? Oh, just a workplace thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's check on your sphere of influence. Let me zoom out here. Great peripherals. Strangers like you, that's a plus. Healthy inner circle, that's good. Thank you. <laughs> There's a ways to go, but 4.5, certainly achievable. How long do you think? To hit 4.5? Mm -hmm. Well, barring a major setback, a public disgrace kind of deal, uh, I'd say 18 months or so. So barring a public disgrace, and she rolls her eyes because of course that would never happen to her, but you could always be on the receiving end of an online shaming is the lesson. So as that episode proceeds, she starts to get dinged for various transgressions. Um, and you know, in, in, in the end, as I said, ends up freer. Just what I was wondering. cartoon character did your mom have to fuck to brew you up in the womb? At least I look like I was born, not shit out by some tormented cow creature in an underground lab. You got tossed out of that lab. Oh yeah? Oh yeah, flushed out. Ooh. In the trash. Your face is a fucking... Fucking. A fucking biological car crash that make Picasso screw his eyes up and say, well, that just don't make sense. <laughs> You're a fucking asshole. Fuck you! Fuck you next Wednesday. Fuck you for Christmas. Fuck you! There is increasingly, uh, I think, available to people a kind of norm about how you ought to behave and how you ought to act. And if you deviate from that norm, you could get dinged, you could lose your reputation, you could uh, lose your job. Um, uh, and yet, it feels like you would be completely lost as a person, right? Were you to lose that community support? Were you to lose the, the social world that you know, right? And Lacey is someone so 
intent on becoming like a high four, a primo four that, you know, she couldn't even envision um, being happy otherwise. Um, but then, you know, when she's ultimately jettisoned from the panoptic society to use, you know, Jeremy Bentham's term for the prison model that the French philosopher Michel Foucault went on to theorize as a good, a good descriptor for the way that modern society functions, which is essentially that there's a kind of constant overseeing um, presence and you can't really isolate the source of the different norms. So you start to just exercise the worst kind of discipline and monitoring on yourself. Um, but once she's released from the, you know, the, the society, she, in, in the end, you know, she swears freely and is just expressing herself kind of in, in the jail cell um, and actually much better off. And so when I said that the episode, I think aptly depicts some of the negative effects, but also the positive effects of online shaming to end on a maybe a less pessimistic note, I do think that there are a lot of benefits to having been tossed out of a community, both like in, as an individual um, person who you know, ha is forced to rely on other forms of validation, like self-validation rather than social validation. I think women especially are taught that their own worth depends on social validation, not internal validation. If you work for yourself, if you have a way of generating your own revenue, that you can lead a free life, that you you can say the things that you want to say, that you you cannot be um, you know attacked by the mob because you have enough resources to support yourself. And he was saying that you know we've seen public shaming, I think, in the academy. Um, so if you're a professor and you're worried about and you don't have tenure, you're worried about writing certain things, um, you know, that's definitely manifesting, but we're seeing it in workplaces all around the world as well. So if you say the wrong thing in your workplace environment, well, you could become unemployable. And so what you have is a bunch of people leading these non free lives, and these inauthentic lives. So you know, the nose dive episode, you can see how phony her smiles are and how phony her interactions are, but not just her, the person who she's interviewing with, that's, we, we need to be pleasant in this situation, because otherwise we'll evaluate each other in a negative way. And that will decrease both of our statuses. So let's play along, let's do the pantomime. And the person who says, I'm not going to play this game. So there's a, a truck driver um, in, in, the, in the episode, who says like, Oh, sweetie, like I can see you're still hung up on your score. Like, you know, you, you will never really be free when you care about what other people think about you. And as you say, if you're internally motivated and you have a sense of self and the ability to say what you like, well, then you can live an authentic life, even if you are physically in a prison cell, you know, that your, your mind is free. Um, and I think what we have is a situation where so many people live in a state of perpetual fear of being shamed. And what's interesting as well is it's not through a central authority like the state, as you say, you know, all the cases that we've already talked about are not a case where you've committed a crime. The the shaming comes from the tyranny of the mob, which is something that Mill warns about when he talks about the importance of free speech. You know, he says, it's not just that we should be worried about the state putting people in prison for what they say. It's 
the tyranny of politeness of other people's norms of etiquette which will suppress many important things you know if you are a daring person who wants to take risks and say extravagant things and come up with new ideas um well we need people like that in our society um and maybe you're not going to be polite maybe you're going to make mistakes and if the mob is constantly silencing you well then how are you ever going to be great other people right who can exact the worst restrictions on individuality and original experiments in living as he says and that is a much worse uh, uh form of restriction in the modern era than you know government um restriction there's a cave exiting reading you can make of this episode too i mean one way to read plato's famous allegory of the cave you know in which the cave dwellers are just stuck staring at shadows of marionettes um so they're kind of doubly uh subject to uh, um, uh illusion is i think as a story about how painful the process of education can be the cave dweller who exits reaches greater understanding right on the other on the other side but it is it is very much a, a painful and difficult process and i think that's kind of how this episode um depicts what it can be like but once she gets there she seems happy and freer right for uh, for having escaped the tyranny of the majority opinion right and the constant terror of having you know the moral police judging you and determining your well-being obviously if you live in a society that is more like nosedive and more like the chinese social credit system and just more and more one that subjects you to ratings it's it's not going to be uh, entirely possible to separate yourself but i do think there's a really important lesson there to be had for just in individuals i definitely think i've become a stronger person um having been i think formerly overly uh, concerned about um social forms of validation frankly